Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and for all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire to, show, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, 
Illuminate our hearts to a right understanding of your word as we dive back into this beloved epistle. Grant, Lord, your servant, the ability to declare your truth clearly and boldly to this, your people, that no falseness would ever be uttered from these lips or from this pulpit. May your word accomplish that which you have purposed it to do, salvation for the lost and nourishment for your people. Sanctify and edify your people this day, conforming us further into the image of Christ. Prepare our hearts now to receive your word. Keep us and guard us from the false lies of the evil one. And in the love of Christ, we pray. Amen. Beloved, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The rulers and authorities, the powers of this dark world and spiritual forces of evil are at work today, seeking to deceive and to lead astray those who profess Christ. These spiritual forces of evil include false teachers who promote false doctrine. In our contemporary society, there is a proliferation of false teachings that deviate from biblical orthodoxy while yet professing to be the real deal. Some of this is obvious to us, such as self-proclaimed prophets, new apostles, to downright cultist fanatics. But what about when it's not so obvious? False teachers are just that. They're teachers. They instruct, yet they corrupt. On the outside, by all appearances, they seem regular, genuine. But inside, they are malicious, purposeful, and misleading. We are warned, beloved, that Satan's counterfeits are close replicas. When we last looked at this epistle, we left off in verse 4, where Jude says that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. As we continue our study in the epistle of Jude, may the Holy Spirit use this precious text to illumine our hearts to the character and nature of false teachers that we might stand in the strength of Christ and resist the schemes of the devil as we contend earnestly for the faith. Amen? Amen. During our last time together, we looked at the opening of the letter where we learned more about who Jude was, who he was writing to, and why he wrote this epistle. It's been several weeks, and so rightly, we need a brief recap of the first four verses to remind us that even Jude, the half-brother of our Lord, needed to repent and submit to the lordship of his own brother. He penned this epistle to the church, not a specific church, but the church throughout all of redemptive history. And though he had meant to write a different letter, one of our shared salvation in the Lord, he was diverted by the Holy Spirit to put out this emergency broadcast alert that the false teachers of whom we have been warned about throughout all scripture had arrived and had done so unnoticed, slipping in right under the church's nose. Unnoticed means unnoticed. It means you can't tell the difference merely on your own. We are to rely upon the discernment given by the Holy Spirit as we study sound doctrine in order that we might be able to recognize and call out all manner of falseness. Make no mistake, beloved. False teachers and false doctrines' sole aim is to subvert, to distort, 
the truth of the gospel to lead astray people from proper fellowship with Christ and to create confusion and division within the body. Jude's thesis statement he makes in verse 3 sets the main stage and main imperative for the entire epistle where he implores the church to contend earnestly for the faith. Today we will be working our way through verses 5 through 16 of the epistle in a message entitled, These Certain People. If you're a note taker with us this morning, we'll be looking at this broad section of scripture in three strokes. Verses 5 through 7, their condemnation, their manner, verses 8 through 13, and their end, verses 14 through 16. Amen? Let's get started with point number one, their condemnation. In the text before us, Jude describes in further detail who these certain people are and what their designated condemnation looks like. He begins this section of the text by providing three examples, another triad of well-known acts of apostate rebellion from the Old Testament as brief reminders of God's preordained judgment, illustrating the outcome of their designated condemnation. We will see that judgment belongs to God, and God routinely makes an example out of those who reject his authority. Starting in verse 5, we get an interesting history lesson in that Jude refers to his half-brother Jesus as the one who led the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, as well as the agent of destruction for Israel's unbelief. Look with me, verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Clearly and emphatically, Jude is declaring Jesus to be the Lord God. This Lord is the agent of God's destruction for unbelieving Israel. We know from the Exodus account that God miraculously delivered the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Israel witnessed the sign judgments. They were led by God to the shores of the Red Sea and beheld the parting of the waters. They crossed on dry ground. They saw the destruction of Pharaoh's army. They witnessed God tabernacle among them, seeing the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. They ate manna from heaven and satiated their thirst with water from the rock. So surely they understood quite literally that God was their savior, right? What was their response to God's abundant mercy and grace towards them? Grumbling, doubting, defecting, all stemming from their root sin of unbelief. If you recall Exodus 16, verse 2, that the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Later, they continue in their unbelief by defecting from the faith and worshiping an idol of their own making. Exodus 32, verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And for their unbelief, they would all perish in the wilderness. We read in Joshua 5, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. 
The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Apostle Paul summarizes this succinctly for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, stating that these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. At their core, false teachers are unbelievers. And like the Israelites in the wilderness, they will be condemned and destroyed for their unbelief in God. In his second example of condemnation, Jude continues in verse 6, And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The New Testament elaborates on this example in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where Peter tells us that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment. We will key in on the judgment of the great day later in the text, but the emphasis here is on the fact that false teachers like fallen angels attempt to usurp glory from God. They refuse to accept their assigned domain and position and reject God's authority, and his order of creation. They are bound in eternal chains as defeated foes and marked out for eternal judgment, all according to God's sovereign plan. Satan and his fallen angels no longer have power through death as we learned last week. Death has been conquered by the death of Christ and validated by his resurrection. Yet Satan and his forces do have some sway over this world for a little while longer. In Revelation 12, we read, after the fall from heaven, in verse 12, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. He's confined by these eternal chains, as Jude mentions, like a dog on a leash. Satan can only do that which the Lord permits. He is free to roam to and fro, seeking to devour he usurped dominion over the earth from Adam, and he is absolutely using his short time before the great day of judgment to dispel the gospel, disrupt communion, and divide the church. In the same manner, false teachers, the reprobate sons of disaster like their father, seek to dispel, disrupt, and divide. In his third example, Jude recounts the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah recorded for us in Genesis 19 is referenced over 20 times throughout Scripture as an example of God's righteous judgment. The sin of the people, their sexual immorality is used here in parallel to the lusts of fallen angels, most likely from Genesis 6, who took for themselves human wives, leading to the creation of the Nephilim. In the NASB, the second half of verse 7 is translated, since they, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the same way as these angels, that is fallen angels, indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh or unnatural desire. Sodom and Gomorrah also serve to foreshadow the ultimate judgment, which is the lake of fire. 
We're reminded of God's promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by flood, but that it would be a punishment of fire. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by the sulfuric storm raining down from on high is just a glimpse of the judgment of the great day. Amen. So to recap our first heading, we saw three examples of God's reserved condemnation. In verses 8 through 13, we will see several examples of the character and nature of false teachers in point number two, their manner. Verse 8, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Here, Jude gives us another triad to describe these certain people. They defile the flesh, they reject God's ultimate authority and blaspheme without regard for God's created order. They do these things, Scripture says, relying on their dreams. The idea is that these debased individuals are so totally depraved that their minds are utterly delusional. John MacArthur in his commentary tells us that these men's minds were numb to the truth of God's word so that being beguiled and deluded, they fantasized wicked perversions being blind and deaf to reality and truth. Perhaps some of these false teachers had claimed that their false doctrines came from dreams or visions directly from God. False teachers, to buttress their false doctrines, always attack the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. Recall from our first sermon that these certain people sought to either add to or subtract from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. These dreamers, they're not idealists. They're not novel thinkers. And they're not true servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. These dreamers are completely out of their minds. And nothing has changed in the last 2,000 years, amen? False teachers today, too, are out of their minds. Joyce Myers telling her following that she's no longer a sinner. She just stopped sinning willy-nilly. Or Kenneth Copeland, who says, and I'm quoting, when God says, I am, I say, I am too. At 86 years old, it's likely he'll soon meet the great I am, face to face, but in judgment. We could spend many a sermon identifying and refuting the many false teachings and doctrines that avail the church today. Amen. Let's break down the first triad Jude gives us in verse 8. First, by defiling the flesh, Jude ties in a theme similar to the sexual immorality of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, described earlier, in that false teachers are marked by egregious sin and even flaunt their lack of any moral restraint. This gross immorality on display, as we discussed in our first sermon, is gross vice, and it's an excuse for licentious living, sinning more that grace may abound in testing the Lord God mockingly. Second, they reject authority. They reject God's authority, scriptural authority, and despise the perfect order of creation. Like the fallen angels we talked about in verse six who rejected their natural place and created order and rebelled, these pretend preachers reject authority both in the civil and spiritual arenas. These are antinomian libertines foolishly claiming not to be governed under any law and they flaunt their perceived freedom in Christ to their own demise. Third, they blaspheme the glorious ones. In the NASB, it is rendered, speak abusively of angelic majesties. To blaspheme, meaning to speak evil, 
These false apostate teachers are so debased in mind that they think that they have authority over angels. We learned in our study of Hebrews of those who sought to worship angels. And here we see that the pig-headed false teachers believe they are above angelic forces in both status and power. To be clear, beloved, Satan and the fallen angels here in verse 8, fallen though they are, are still angels, still angelic in power and might, but corrupt. The idea here is that the false teachings of the people who believe they can somehow control Satan and his demonic minions with an empty word of faith. Beloved, this is sheer foolishness. And to drive the point home, Jude gives an example to his readers in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, to us, the story of Michael and the devil should make us scratch our heads, especially if you've read your Bible cover to cover. This reference has no corresponding mention in all of Scripture. Nowhere in God's word will you find the account of Moses' body being argued over. So why then does Jude make mention of it? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Jude to pen this down and record it for us in canon to be used throughout redemptive history? Simply put, it's clear in the reading of the entire epistle that Jude knows his audience. Jude knows that his original readers of this epistle would likely be mostly Jewish converts, that they would have a background in the teachings of the synagogue and would likely have known of this story as one passed down orally through their generations. This story is from an extra-biblical text known as the Testament of Moses. The Jewish tradition of the day taught that this confrontation between Michael and Satan took place as Michael was tasked to bury the body of Moses to prevent Satan from using Moses' body for some diabolical purpose. Perhaps Satan wanted to use it as an idol or an object of worship to lead Israel astray. So God would send Michael to be certain that it was buried properly. Irrespective of its origin, the story was not considered inspired by God and not included in our canon. What we do know of the death and burial of Moses comes to us from Deuteronomy 34, verse 4. The Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. So Jude uses the story of Michael, knowing that his readers would understand the point in which he is making, which is that even the archangel Michael, the greatest angel of them all, knew his proper place under God's supreme authority. He knew better than to pronounce judgment against Satan, he rightly ascribes judgment to the Lord by saying, the Lord rebuke you. This, beloved, is the supreme illustration of how Christians are to deal with Satan and his demons. We are not to address them, but rather to seek the Lord's intervention and power against them. Amen? Amen. We see that even angels have a line they will not cross, but the debased and depraved mind of man does not. False teachers blaspheme the Lord when they improperly elevate themselves higher than their designated station. Jude continues this point in verse 10, that these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. One theologian puts it, 
Apostate teachers in their brash, bold, egotistical infatuation with imagined power and authority disparage that which they do not understand. False teachers are intellectually and spiritually arrogant in their lack of understanding because they are blinded by Satan and spiritual matters are beyond their unregenerate capacity to understand. In divine matters, they are no brighter than the dumbest of beasts. False teachers corrupt themselves by relying on their own thoughts, their own emotions, and are destroyed by their own arrogance. Their emphatic reliance upon self and understanding is evidence of their unregenerate hearts. The only response to their egregious sin of self-righteousness is woe. Woe to them, verse 11, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, wherever woe is mentioned in scripture, it means woe. Watch out. It's to pronounce the severest form of judgment. It is to say that it would have been better that they hadn't been born rather than face the judgment that awaits them. Woe is mentioned in several places throughout scripture, but quite possibly the most well-known comes from the mouth of Isaiah, where after seeing the holiness of God, declares, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Therein, we see a clear example of the fear of God before Isaiah's eyes. He rightly understands that God is thrice holy. God is all light, and Isaiah is undone in comparison. Contrast this against false teachers who have no fear of God before their eyes, no respect or reverence for the holiness of God. Again, quoting Isaiah, Woe to these who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Another theologian puts it, The most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Oh, sure, false teachers will use his name, but it's a different Jesus, and it's a different gospel. Remember, beloved, their aim is to distort, and they do so by twisting the gospel, twisting scripture to their purpose, which is to lead others away from right fellowship with Christ, and they will echo the words of their father, the serpent in Genesis, to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? Make no mistake, beloved. False teachers sit and plan on how to lead you astray. They ponder how they can best influence you. They sit and think how they can take more of your money and how to increase their numbers. It's abhorrent and it's evil. Echoing the Apostle Paul, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. False teachers cannot make the same claim because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Jude's pronouncement of woe on false teachers is amplified by yet another triad that he uses to describe their modus operandi, their main point in leading others astray. In verse 11, we continue for, they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. In Genesis 4, we read of Cain, the firstborn of Adam and Eve, who gave an improper offering to the Lord and was rejected. His younger brother, Abel, gave the first fruits of his cattle and their fat portions, which was accepted by God. 
out of anger, rooted in jealousy, which is rooted in self-righteousness, which is rooted in pride, Cain rose up against Abel and committed murder. A little leaven leavened the whole lump, and what began as a failure in worship to offer the choicest of his labors ended not only in committing murder, but his excommunication east of Eden from his family to settle in the land of Nod and to remain a fugitive all the days of his life. Cain was cursed to live a long life marked by God so that whoever was to kill Cain would receive a stricter judgment seven times over. In Numbers 22, we're introduced to Balaam, a sorcerer of sorts who, while continually saying that he would not curse Israel, ended up being revealed to be motivated by financial greed and compromised his morals. His idolatry and immorality ended in swift judgment and death, which is recorded for us in Numbers 31. In number 16, we read of the rebellion of Korah, who led 250 Jewish families to reject God's appointed leadership in Moses and Aaron. And in righteous judgment, God caused the earth to open to swallow them up alive down to Sheol. False teachers like Cain are impious, irreverent, and self-righteous. Like Balaam are motivated by greed and money. And like Korah, reject God's true servant leaders to point to the... Uh, promoting themselves, each example serving to point to the judgment shared by false teachers. And moving into verses 12 and 13, Jude writes for us very poetic imagery to further define the manner of these false teachers. Look with me at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. God's intent for the church is to glorify him in fellowship struck by the blood of the lamb and to live and serve one another in the unity of the spirit. We learned about unity in the local body this morning in Sunday school, amen. Smooth sailing, fair winds, following seas as they say, our service members with a flair for the nautical can attest that there are dangers lurking just beneath the surface of the water. Hidden reefs have caused great a many shipwreck as the Apostle Paul can most certainly attest to, having gone through it three times. False teachers are such hidden reefs that when division and strife are stirred up within the body by their unrighteousness, what started out as a dinner cruise turns into a desperate search and rescue mission. Likewise, as we gather each month to celebrate and partake of the Lord's Supper, we engage in these love feasts. The gathering of the saints to partake of this common meal attests to the communion we have with each other because of the union we have in Christ. We are warned not to take the meal in an unworthy manner. To do so reaps guilt concerning the body and the blood of our Lord and judgment. Amen. We read from 1 Corinthians 11 every month. So I ask, has it become rote tradition to us? Do we pay attention when we go through that monthly? We're going to the table next Lord's Day, right? The call to the believers to examine ourselves before the Lord. False teachers have blatant disregard for the holiness of the God behind the sacraments. They are the hidden reefs upon which the church wrecks. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord, amen. False teachers ultimately fail in their perceived role 
as teacher, pastor, elder. In a dereliction of duty, they fail primarily as they are not qualified by the Spirit of God and do not possess the necessary character qualifications required by God to lead his people. Jude says they are like shepherds feeding themselves, echoing Ezekiel 34. They failed in their duty to care for the flock of God, and so God judges them and says, no longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. False teachers are waterless clouds swept along by winds, echoing Proverbs 25, 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. These false teachers are useless in the kingdom of God. Boasters, unloving, inhospitable. Without rainwater, clouds are just puffed up air. Similarly, apostate false teachers promise spiritual, life-giving water but are empty. They promise the hope of rain but actually delivering nothing but dryness and death. The gospel they preach is false and it leads only to hell and eternal damnation. They are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. False teachers claim to provide feasts but instead deliver only famine. Matthew 7, 17 and 20 we read that we will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Beloved, doubly dead and uprooted trees are good for one thing firewood. They are like wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, hearkening back to Isaiah 57. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. False teachers promise powerful ministry, but are quickly exposed as wreakers of havoc and workers of worthless shame. They stir up the mire of dissension. For them, there will be no peace with God. His enmity and his wrath are fiercely and firmly focused upon them. And we read they are like wandering stars, a brief moment of brilliance that fades away into darkness, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever, bringing our attention back to the condemnation reserved for them in eternal judgment. Most definitely, beloved, the second heading of the text has taken up most of our time together this morning, but to briefly recap, false teachers are depraved in mind, immoral, antinomian, blasphemous, led by their own emotions, corrupt, worthy of woe, impious, irreverent, self-righteous, greedy, vying for prominence, unqualified, empty, fruitless, havoc-wreaking, wicked, and fading, shall I go on. These are not the men to lead Christ's church. Which brings us to our final point, their end. Verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. 
The message is abundantly clear that the main problem exhibited by false teachers is rooted in ungodliness. He quotes Deuteronomy 33, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 66. Jude's capturing for us a glimpse of the great day of the Lord's judgment. The fourfold use of the word ungodly as a depiction of these false teachers identifies their core iniquity, which is a failure in reverence of God. To quote Steve Larson, Lawson, every knee will bow to Jesus, either as Lord and Savior in this life or as prosecutor and judge in the life to come, but every knee will bow. And that judgment is coming, beloved. Verse 16, Jude concludes, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful, own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Beloved, grumbling and being malcontent is the opposite of joy in the Lord. False teachers do not have the joy of salvation enjoyed by believers, and it is evidenced by testing what they say against the word of God. Amen. We shall know them by their fruits or severe lack thereof. The word grumbler is found only here in the New Testament, and it reminds us of the murmurings of Israel that we read about earlier. Complainers, finding fault in everything, complaining about God's revealed will, much like Sodom and Gomorrah, fallen angels, Cain, Korah, and Balaam, false teachers walk according to their own lusts, their own sight, their own sinful desires of self-satisfaction. The word heresy comes from the Greek word heresis, the essential meaning of which is a taking or a choosing for oneself. They speak arrogantly, pompously, and without spiritual value. They're empty talkers. They spread their poison by lacing it with honey. Oh, it may sound good, especially if you have itching ears. But their poison will rot you from the inside. Beloved, we need truth. We need God's truth. Infallible, inspired, inerrant truth. The gospel, beloved, is not only foolishness to those who are perishing, it is offensive. It doesn't and it should not go down easy for the unconverted. In our natural state, we are completely deserving of a similar condemnation and judgment as these false teachers we've been talking about. Apart from the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit upon our dead hearts, we too would be governed by our sin. Slaves to our Adamic nature, free only to reap further condemnation upon our heads. Our problem is this. God is holy and we are not. Amen. What was lost in Eden by the sin of Adam created an uncrossable void between God and man. It can only be restored in the second Adam. Man broke covenant with God and it would take more than man to redeem and to restore sinners back to him. At the proper time, God chose to send his only son, the second person of the Godhead, Christ Jesus, the man, God-man, into the world to step down into darkness, to put on humanity and to dwell among us. Being fully man and fully God, Jesus completely upheld God's perfect holy law down to the iota while never committing a single sin. And though he is sinless, he freely chose to lay his life down on a Roman cross, to suffer brutally and to die. He did so that he would take the full punishment of sin, the full unmitigated wrath of God, 
And in so doing, he purchased and secured eternal life for his people, his elect, his saints, foreordained by God in eternity past. And taking on our sin, he imputed to us his righteousness. He was buried, he rose again from the dead the third day, declaring victory over sin and death and validating every promise of his word. So what must be done to inherit this salvation and eternal life? Cry out to him, calling upon his name, meaning to confess your sinfulness in humble repentance, that you would be able to completely turn from your sinful desires and live for him. It is his work, his worth, and his merit alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If you're here with us this morning and Jesus is not your Lord and Master, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That as the gospel has been declared, that the Holy Spirit would shatter your heart of stone and would replace it with a heart of flesh. I pray that your eyes would be open to see for the very first time that God is alive and God is real. And if that is the case and the Holy Spirit is doing a mighty work within you, I'd love to talk with you afterwards. May the Lord call you unto himself this day. Church, we are implored to contend for the faith. We stand in this faith. We are exhorted to be diligent in our study of the word so that we are able to refute false teachers. Test their doctrines in light of the sufficiency of the word of God. Does it measure up? Is this of God? Now, having gone through the text, we know what false teachers look like. We know their MO. So we must rely upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit to resist the influence of deception and to be discerning and steadfast in Christ. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. I'll leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. O Lord, you have laid down your life for the sheep. Preserve them from the fangs of the wolf. False teachers who craftily and industriously hunt for the precious lives of the sheep and devour them by their falsehoods are as dangerous and detestable as evening wolves, hungry and desperate from the day. Darkness is their element. Deceit is their character. And destruction is their end. We are most in danger from them when they wear sheepskin. Blessed is the one who has been kept from them, for thousands are made the prey of grievous wolves that enter within the fold of the church. Amen.